right, how about we start off with a testimony here? We got this one emailed in just a couple days ago. Uh, hi, Zion team. I wanted to share some good news, with you. good news with you. My name is, insert's name, and I live in Livonia, Michigan. One morning last summer, I coughed up some blood and went to my doctor who sent me for a CT scan of my abdomen. They identified a large tumor in my lung that measured six centimeters by six centimeters. A biopsy indicated kidney cancer in my lung, very unusual. I was sent to an oncologist and surgeon for treatment with the recommendation to remove the tumor via surgery, which will most likely end up with my entire left lung being removed. Coincidentally, uh, Pastor Jim started a series on healing as God's idea, healing like Jesus, the same time my diagnosis. Understanding that we are not on a performance plan or getting a report card from God, <clears throat> that we aren't trying to convince God about healing, but he's trying to convince us. I think this person was listening. <laughs> that God won't heal me because I'm good and won't withhold healing from me because I'm bad, but will heal me because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago has changed my life. These stories provided a new revelation to help me understand better and better that if we want to understand God's will, look at the life and works of Jesus. About a week before the surgery was scheduled in late November 2022, I had one final PET scan and the tumor had miraculously disappeared and the surgery was canceled. Come on. Follow-up was recommended. The results of the PET scan were completely clear again. The surgeon and his physician's assistant told me they had never seen anything like this. And the oncologist mentioned that he wasn't sure what kind of prayers I was praying, but to keep them up and asked me to pray for his family as well. Yeah. Yay, Jesus. So good. Well, uh, happy Resurrection Day. In case you didn't hear, we're starting a resurrection team. So I don't know if you know, the, the same Jesus, and actually the same book of Matthew, who commanded us to uh, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize, same commands are to heal the sick, raise the dead. And so um, if you believe in water baptism, you got to believe in dead raising too. It's all part of the same book. How are we doing? <laughs> I want you to think about how supernatural Christianity is. You can't even be a Christian unless you believe in dead raising. You have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Entrance exam into Christianity is not believing a, a list of doctrines or getting dunked or taking communion or getting confirmed. It's believing in dead raising. Yeah. So it, that should have been our first clue that this thing was not all in our heads. It was uh, it's not just a logical faith. It's something that, to be experienced. So, All right, well, here we go. So we're going to look at the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead and look at how that points towards Jesus' resurrection and ultimately our resurrection. Got a whole bunch of good news for you. So um, turn me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We're continuing our series called Heal Like Jesus. We are in part 22 out of 26. Can you believe we're at 22 already? And so I've been enjoying this. Hope you guys have too. And so as we come to this story, we're rapidly approaching the end of Jesus' ministry. So right before John 11 is John 10. And Jesus, he's having a confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, was a religious group who was all about keeping the rules and, uh, and being good and being good enough. And uh, there's still Pharisees today. They just don't call themselves Pharisees. I'm not going to say what they call themselves. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, YouTube heresy hunters. That's what they call themselves. All right. And so, uh, so Jesus has this confrontation with the heresy hunters, uh, the, with the Pharisees, the Pharisee hunters. And so, um, yeah, isn't that interesting? Pharisee and heresy rhyme. It's, it's interesting. Anyway, so um, he has a confrontation with the Pharisees, and uh, Jesus lets them know in uh, no uncertain terms that he's God. And they understand exactly what he means, so they pick up stones to stone him. They tried this two years ago and has the same result. Jesus is supernaturally protected, walks right through the crowd. They're not able to touch him. So now he crosses the Jordan to get away from this hostility, and this is where our story picks up. So they're just, I mean, it is at a fever pitch. They, they want to kill Jesus, okay? So John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, 
Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was, all, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This was a story earlier in the Bible. This is describing her. Whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. So it opens up. The, the, uh, Lazarus is very sick. Uh, the sisters want to send a message to Jesus. When they say send a message to Jesus, this isn't like a quick text. This isn't like, hey, Jesus, um, he whom you love is sick. It's not like this. They have, to, they have to find a messenger. They have to give him the message. And, I mean, I'm being generous. It's a one day's journey from Bethany to where he is. And uh, during this time was probably flood time, which means he would have had to cross the Jordan River. I mean, across meaning probably swam across it. So you make a picture this uh, messenger gets to Jesus. He's exhausted. He's wet. He finally gets to him. And he comes with them with this carefully worded message. Lord, he whom you love is ill. End of message, signed Mary and Martha, right? Notice they didn't say, he who loves you is sick. It's interesting. They're not appealing to Jesus for his healing on the basis of how much he loves Jesus. He's appealing for the healing based on how much Jesus loves him. That's powerful. You're not going to be healed because of how much you love for God. I've seen so many people get prayer for healing. It's like, oh, God, you see how much this person loves you? That's not a good start. If you're trying to get anything from God based on how much you love him or your amazing works, that doesn't count. The only thing that counts is what Jesus did on the cross. You will not heal because you have so much faith in him. Faith is not a currency, and when you get enough of it, you can buy whatever it is that you're, you're, uh, whatever promise it is you're going to try to pull down from heaven. Faith opens the hand of God. No, it doesn't. The hands of God have been open for 2,000 years. Faith, faith sees what Jesus has done and responds and says, yes, so be it unto me. Faith responds to what God's already done. It doesn't make God move like he's up there sitting around. Ooh, there's some faith. Ooh, you know, we have to, have to action here. No, he already moved 2,000 years ago. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And so Christ's reaction is pretty different. Normally when we see this, Jesus gets a report. What's he do? He's like, all right, let's go. Let's go heal this person or maybe just sends the word and heals them long distance. Uh, he's got a different reaction. He maybe has some specific revelation that he was obeying. Uh, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You find that expression, the glory of God, throughout John's gospel. Different signs that Jesus did pointed to his glory. Each one of them was a picture of the cross. I wish we could study the whole book of John. But the glory of God, it's a manifestation of God's power. So I'm not sure if you, um, when I say manifestation, picture drawing back the blinds so that you can see what's behind there, right? So um, the glory of God is when the, uh, the Spirit pulls back the blinds, and we can see more clearly what God is like. We can see his power. We can see his wisdom. We can see his strength. We can see his unconditional love. So when there's a manifestation of God's glory, it's like, oh, I see more clearly who he is. And Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, God's going to find glory here. What's happening in this case is going to reveal more of what God is like, more of the heart of God. Okay? He's going he's to draw back the blinds, and people are going to see God's power. Okay? Now, the disciples, they didn't really know what he meant, but Jesus is also saying this. What's going to happen here is actually going to speed the way to the cross. And we're going to see after he raises Lazarus from the dead, they really want to kill him. They start making plans. And so he's saying what happens here, it's going it's to expedite what's going to happen. Verse 5. We're going through like 40 verses. Are we doing okay? Are you following the story? There's some, there's some stuff coming that's going to be so good. Don't tease me now. Don't make me tell that story. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I love it didn't say he loved the whole family. It's like he loved Martha, and he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus. God doesn't just love you as a general. He loves Zion. No, no, he, lo- he does. But he loves you individually as a person, not as a block group. 
God, God, he actually knows your name. He knows the hair, uh, the numbers of hair in your head. And if you're bald, he knows how many follicles are in there, okay? (laughs) I love that little emphasis. He loved each one individually. And um, uh, verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What an odd reaction there. Get the timing here, okay? So uh, Lazarus is sick, so they get the messenger. The messenger goes, let's just say it's a day. Jesus waits two days longer, and let's just say it's a day for Jesus to get there. By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Are you seeing this? So by the time Jesus gets the message, it's already too late. Okay, it's already too late by the time he gets the message. Uh, Verse 7. Then after this, after waiting two more days, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea again. Judea, the place where they just were trying to stone him and kill him. Okay? Hey, why not go back back into the furnace, right? The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you trying to go there again? He didn't say, hey, let's go to Bethany and heal Lazarus. He said, let's go back to Judea. And so on their minds, minds, they just heard this news about Lazarus. They must be thinking, oh, he said this sickness isn't going to lead to death. Lazarus must be getting better, right? Jesus said this illness is not going to lead to death. Maybe Lazarus is healed. Like Jesus isn't even paying attention to Lazarus, okay? And so, um, but then he says some rather mystical words here. So they, they say, Rabbi, the Jews are just trying to kill you. And he, uh, verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? Jesus talks sometimes in these mysteries, doesn't he? Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of, the, of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is he talking about here? This is interesting. He said, there's not 12 hours in the day. And the Jewish day, there was 12 hours and uh, day meaning daylight. So here's what it means. However how much daylight they had, they divided it by 12. So when you read an hour in the Bible, it's not necessarily 60 minutes. It could be 50 minutes. So it could be 70 minutes. Okay? Daylight was a fixed amount of time. The day, it, it, it was either a longer day or a shorter day. There was always day. It was, it was a fixed amount of time. Okay? So what's the point? Their day was fixed. And so Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in a day? Therefore, 12 hours can never be lengthened. It's always the same. It's daylight. Right? And now what Jesus is saying, there's a fixed time for me to finish my ministry. But what was he responding to? Jesus, we're going back to where they're going to kill you. He says, listen, there's a fixed time for my ministry. You can almost imagine him smelling at his disciples. You boys, you're trying to save me. You're trying to stop me from getting stoned to death. They can't kill me until it's time. They can't shorten the time, and they can't lengthen the time. If we walk in the light of my Father's plan, that's like a man walking in the sunlight. They can't touch us. There's a, a missionary that we've had here, and we uh, love David Hogan. He, mis- he, uh, he has missions in uh, Mexico among the cartels and all sorts of wild stories and stuff. And so for him, life's different. And so he kind of approaches everything like a, like a military war. You know? And so when you're out eating with him, it's, it's, you know, you're trying to have a good time, but you know, he's, you know, he's, on the, he's on the high alert. Like he says he can't like, transform into like, comfortable American because he lives in a war zone. Right? I mean, they've got hits on him. They've got all sorts of stuff going on. And uh, he made this statement when we were uh, eating one time. I was asking him about this, and he said, no bullet can kill me unless the Lord has my name on it. What's he saying? There's an appointed time. And there's no, no cartel can kill him unless God says, okay, this is the time you're going to be a martyr. Verse 11, how we doing? Good. 30 more verses. Here we go. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. Boy, he's giving us some clues into how he sees dead raising here. 
The disciple said to him, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he's going to recover. The guy's sick. Let him sleep. What do you do when someone's sick? You let him sleep. They're thinking in natural terms. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Uh, this poor guy's asleep, Jesus. Why are you going to wake him up? I mean, you just have to love the disciples here. Now, um, in the Old Testament, and especially the New Testament, believers never die. They fall asleep. Because there's a life in the life after death. There's a life beyond this grave. Believers do not die. They fall asleep. Okay? It's a beautiful picture. Your body falls asleep, and then your true self stands in the presence of Jesus instantly. So when you fall asleep, you literally fall asleep into the presence of Jesus. And the disciples, they haven't caught on. They're still thinking, well, he said this illness isn't going to uh, uh, you know, lead to death. So uh, he's going to wake him up. He must be sleeping. And uh, Jesus, it's, it's great. Verse 14. Then Jesus told him plainly, plainly Lazarus has died. I'm I'm trying to teach you guys these spiritual mysteries and you're going to wake him up he dead Okay, I'll just make it clear he dead if you don't understand biblical language let me use some earthly language you can't understand verse 15 and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him so we can wake him up right so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples still not getting it let us go that we might die with him I mean, he doubted later on, but you got to love the guy's courage right now. He's like, let's go and die. And Jesus like, I mean, I'm sure Jesus was just rolling his eyes like, you got to be kidding me. John, write that one down, you know. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, rabbis believe that the, uh, this isn't biblical truth. This is t- the Talmud. This is the, the rabbi's teaching. They believe that the soul hovered over the body for three days, and after that, there was no more hope. So in all of Jewish mind, after four days, there's absolutely no hope for anything that can happen here. The body's starting to decompose, okay? Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. Bethany was the city they was going to. God bless you, sweetheart. I recognize that sneeze. I recognize that sneeze anywhere. I've loved that sneeze for 29 years. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. I need all the points I can get, guys. So listen, trust me. I'm burning through points. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So maybe um, uh, Lazarus was well known since uh, Jews from Jerusalem were coming all the way over there. Remember, Jerusalem is where they're wanting to kill Jesus. And so, um, so Lazarus has been dead for four days. The Jews, they would bury a person immediately, but then the mourning would go on for several days. And so the body would, uh, they did not embalm the body. It was a hot country. So what they would do is they would cover it in, let's just call it essential oils for you people who love that stuff, right? They cover his body in oils, and then they wrap him head to toe in the cloth, and then they lay him in the back of a tomb. There would be like a ledge in the back, a picture, a cave uh, with a hole in it. They would lay him in the back of that, and it would take several men to roll a boulder over it that would probably weigh somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. So they put the, uh, the body in there. It's buried. Now the time of mourning is going on for days, and that's what's happening here. So Jesus gets there four days later. They're still mourning. And sometimes they had professional wailers and mourners. These people, um, you'll, you'll see a little bit later, it looks like they're really sincere. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So Jesus comes to the village, and he doesn't go into the village because you have to understand the tension that's going on there. They are plotting to kill Jesus. So he comes there. She comes out to him. Uh, and remember, why are they trying to kill Jesus? We just saw a story or two ago. They think Jesus is a demon-possessed sorcerer. Remember, they can't, they can't argue that there's supernatural things going on. They say, but this is by the prince of demons. This is by Beelzebub that he's, that he's doing these things. Remember? So now they've branded him as a heretic. He's, uh, he's blasphemy. He's, uh, he's committing. Uh, he, he says that he's God. 
and he's doing stuff on the Sabbath. He's breaking their laws. So now they've got their case. One plus one plus one equals we're going to kill him, right? And so uh, they tried to stone him last week. They weren't just upset, okay? They meant it. They're really trying to kill him. So he doesn't go into the village because there's too many Jews from Jerusalem. So he sends somebody. And Martha, uh, uh, she's the older sister. Um, from other passages, she seems to be kind of the organized one, kind of the doer. You can see her with her, her task list, you know, very, very logical. And, uh, and uh, Mary's more the meditative one. Uh, she could spend all day, you know, in prayer, worshiping at Jesus' feet and all those type of things. And so um, Martha, she's got her agenda. She's crossing things off. And the servant knows, hey, you know, if we're going to get anything done around here, let's go over to Martha because uh, Mary's probably just going to be worshiping, right? And so Martha comes. She meets Jesus outside the village. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I'm not seeing that as an accusation. She knew that probably by the time the messenger got to Jesus, it was already too late. And uh, we know Martha and Mary had been talking about this because Mary's going to come out and say the exact same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here. So we know they've been talking about it. They've been contemplating what, you know, if only, if only this would happen. And I think we've all had those times where it's like something difficult. And it's like, man, if only this person would have prayed. If only I would have known then what I knew now. If only, right? And so it's, it's kind of this, I know you could have healed them. It's kind of like a statement of faith, but then it's like hopeless, but it didn't happen, right? Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's like she's been mulling over. Remember, Jesus sent back the message. This illness does not lead to death, but that God should be glorified. So it's like, you know, you could have been here. I wish you'd have been here. But, you know, uh, but then she has like this spark of faith. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, what God will give you. It's interesting. A lot of people, I, and maybe this is true, they, they talk about how, um, you know, when Jesus comes to Martha, and we're going to see here in a second, he says, I'm the resurrection, the life. And when he comes to Mary, he, when Mary comes and says the same thing to him, he weeps. And so kind of the idea is that Martha got a theological answer and Mary, the worshiper, got compassion. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some truth to that here. But I want you to see here, Martha's the only one in the story who has any faith. Yeah. Jesus is he's, he's searching for faith here, right? He, there, there's got to be faith somewhere in the room. Either the person who brought him somewhere, there's got to be something there. And so here, here she is. But I, even now... I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Have you ever been in the woods where there's like a thunderstorm and you can't see like your hand in front of your face is dark and all of a sudden lightning hits. It lights up the whole sky, lights up the woods. You can see every path, you can see every tree and then it goes back to darkness. That's what it's kind of like here. It's like she's hopeless and all of a sudden she gets this spark where she can see it. You know, whatever you ask from God, God will give you, right? She had it for one moment. Verse 22, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, it's like it goes back dark again here. Verse 24, Martha said to him, yeah, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. It was kind of just the vaguest hope that something good can happen in the future someday. God is sovereign. Who knows? He can do whatever he wants. And she kind of goes back to this thing. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, are we doing okay? I just moved through 23 verses here, guys. Come on. (sighs) Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What's he doing? He's trying to get her back to come to faith. Here's, it's interesting. Jesus is saying that resurrection is not an event to be placed on a timeline. Resurrection is a person, and that person was standing right in front of her. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, you will have another life after this life, life in another age, but that life that you're going to have, it's me. 
Jesus is that life. Resurrection is not an event, it's a person. And it's an event, uh, it's an event first of all, because of the person, right? I am the resurrection and the life. I saw one translation, it, it said something like, resurrection, that is me. I am the resurrection and the life. The life that you and Martha have just placed at the end of the age, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I am that life. I am the life of the age to come. And to believe on me is to receive that life of the eternal age now. Guys, the question is not, do you want to go to heaven when you die? The question is, do you want heaven in your life before you die? Right? Jesus is not trying to get you into heaven when you die. He's trying to get heaven into you before you die. The life of the ages, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it is available. It is within reach. It is at hand. It's as close as the air that you breathe. To believe upon him is to be united to that life now. Eternal life doesn't mean you're going to live forever. Eternal life is an eternal kind of life. It's the kind of life that God himself has, and he's saying you can experience it now. I remember uh, Mary and I, uh, the church sent us on a cruise a few years ago. And so uh, they had some fancy pants restaurants there that you have to have a reservation for. And so when you get there, they remind you that you have to have a reservation to get in. So they don't let you in right away. You're like, hey, we're here for the, you know, the baker party. All right, yeah, I'll sit down here. And so they brought us some hors d'oeuvres. And so, you know, we're snacking on the hors d'oeuvres. Those what we like to call them horse doovers. And so um, <laughs> we're seeing the spelling of that like it's impossible. And so, um, so we're enjoying our horse doovers. And there's other people like sitting there eating them. And then they like, call Smith party. And the Smiths like smirk, smugglingly walk in while we're sitting there like, oh, yeah. And they call the baker part, and we smugly looked at everyone else like, yeah, we're getting in there. You know, it's interesting. We didn't bring the hors d'oeuvres in with us because the hors d'oeuvres were just a foretaste of what was available on the entire menu. What we are now participating in, all the blessings that are ours because of Christ, saved, healed, delivered, prospered, protected, wisdom, strength, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those are just the hors d'oeuvres. It's actually part of the uh, entire menu that we get part of. We're going to get the whole menu. This is just the down payment. This is just the foretaste. Jesus says, or uh, Paul says in Hebrew, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it was Paul. He said, um, the, uh, he said, you have tasted the power of the ages to come. What's he saying? You've gotten the hors d'oeuvres, but there's something greater coming. Guys, there's a life after life after death. Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall never die. Guys, we've got to get a whole different kind of understanding here in the 21st century what the Bible means by death. And he turns to Martha and he says, do you believe this? On the basis of who I am, do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. The Greek is emphatic. It's like, I believe. Yeah, they said you're a heretic. They want to stone you to death. But I see who you now are. I believe. Jesus has found faith. Uh, verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. Why is she saying in private? Because they all want to kill him. Verse 29, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. You can almost see her just about jogging to get there. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When, Jesus, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Okay, so she, she gets up, she's jogging there, so she's coming. And now here's all these crying Jews coming after her and, uh, for this little meeting now. Uh, verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Martha was more practical. Mary, she's a worshiper. She laid out at his feet, and she says the same thing that uh, Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's weeping. All the Jews are weeping. And this is, uh, this is an interesting response here, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit 
and greatly troubled. He sees these people crying, and there's this holy anger that rises up. The New Testament is written in Greek. Here's what the, the words behind that means. It means he was deeply moved in his spirit. He was angered. He was enraged. It's talking about flaming anger. Uh, the Greek literature also is used to describe an angry horse that snorts and stomps its foot. So Jesus sees them crying, and he's angry. It says, it says when he saw them weeping, that's when these emotions came. Okay? What's going on? He sees what sin has brought into this world. He sees the death and the grief and the sorrow, and he sees the Satan behind it, and it makes him angry. Look at what, God, look at what this enemy has done to my creation. And we've seen this before, guys. God never smiles on sickness. He never has a higher purpose for sickness. It's always an assault on his beloved creation that he's come to undo. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Even though Jesus knew that he was going to completely change the situation from Lazarus in a couple minutes, he wept. Okay? Shortest verse in the Bible. For those of you looking to start memorizing scripture, this would be a great place to start. <laughs> John eleven thirty five. 35. Say it with me. Jesus wept. You guys just memorized scripture. You, know, you didn't even know you were going to do that this morning, did you? It's awesome. <laughs> Jesus wept. What's he doing? Jesus is showing us what God is like. And when God looks upon creation and he sees what the enemy has done, he enters into that compassion. That's what Hebrews 2 says when um, it says he's our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He doesn't just up there, uh, you know, theologically understanding your pain from a psychoanalytical perspective. He actually enters into your pain. We have a God who feels. The Greeks uh, taught that, they, uh, that, um, that gods had no feelings because if you made a God feel, then you had power over them and you could move them. The Bible does away with all that nonsense. It says we have a God who is moved by our pain, moved by compassion. Guys, whatever you're going through, God's not up there uh, you know, analyzing it through a committee. He's entering into that pain and feeling it with you. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Uh, depending on the stone again, between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds would have taken several people to move it. I want you to get the horror rippling through the crowd. Remove the stone? What would we say today? Exhume the body. Dig up the casket. Okay, imagine, can you just see the horror if someone came to your family and said, hey, we need to, uh, uh, Pastor Sean says we need to exhume the body. Notice how I'm blaming this on Sean. <laughs> it's so much easier. Exhume the body. Dig up the coffin, verse 39. Martha, this, the practical one, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. I'm sorry, guys, you can't beat the King James on this one. Lord, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> Sometimes it just stinketh, guys. Guys, Jesus, he's been there four days. He's going to stink by now. It's going to be awful. We can't do this. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What's he doing? He's bringing her back to faith. Somebody's got to have faith in this room. Uh, I want you guys to get this. We're not just dealing with a dead man now. We're dealing with a decomposed body. Remember the other two dead raising stories we looked at? There was the widow, uh, widow's son, and they're on their way to burial. And so dead a short time. Jairus' daughter, she was dead in the room, in the room where she died. Here, we didn't have decomposing bodies then. Here we've got an incredible miracle of a decomposing body. Um, verse 41, so they took away the stone. There must have been such authority in the voice of Jesus, the way he said it, that they actually acted on it, and these men began to roll away this heavy stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that I knew that you always hear me. Boy, that's a good thing for us to know. How, why, did, why did God always hear him? Because he was his son and he was righteous. Guess what? You are righteous not based on your behavior. You're, based, you're righteous because of your new nature. We've got whole messages on this. Well, I wonder if God hears my prayers. My prayers don't feel like they're getting above the ceiling. Your feelings are not the highest indicator of truth. Well, he's telling us something really powerful right here. God always hears you. I knew that you always hear me. Boy, if we could only know that. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. I'm not like these Jewish healers of the day. The Jewish healers of their day, they try to draw people to themselves. He says, I'm not here to draw people to myself. I'm here to draw people to you, Father. And so I'm making sure they understand where this power source is coming from. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Luckily, he said Lazarus, otherwise the whole graveyard might have come out. <laughs> come on, somebody. Remember when Jesus, when Jesus rises from the dead, all the people start walking, all the Old Testament saints, there's so much resurrection power. Thank goodness he was specific. Verse 44, the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. And remember, he's wrapped head to toe with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, said to them, unbind him and let him go. So no, Lazarus, he's got the grave clothes on that he came, so he's bound head to toe with these things. And um, so you know what that means? Have you ever seen, been to a museum and you see the Egyptian mummies, right? They're, they're bound. They can't move, okay? Here's what this means. It means there was four miracles that took place in, in this thing. So how did he get from the edge of the cave to the beginning of the tomb when they roll away the stone? Miracle number one. Well, not miracle number one. One of the miracles. So first of all, he was raised from the dead. Then his decomposed body was reconstructed. He was healed of the sickness that killed him. And the power of God picked him off, off that ledge and, let him, and put him into the entrance of the cave. Four miracles. He's standing there with his grave clothes. It's interesting. When Jesus is raised from the dead, his grave clothes are undisturbed. Jesus somehow transmaterializes out of them because he has a resurrected body. A resurrected body that seems to be able to move at the speed of thought. Remember, he's able to, like, trans... Remember, the disciples are in the upper room, and he, he just appears through the room. And, but he can still eat. He's eating fish. Aren't you glad in a resurrected body we still get to eat? And the calories all get rebuked. Isn't that just incredible? And if you had been there, you would have been paralyzed with wonder, scared spitless. Here's this man standing there. And, uh, and Jesus said, would somebody please unwrap this guy? Can you imagine being the person and I uh, begin get unwrapping the eyes and here's these eyes blinking in the sunlight at you and it's the same guy that you had buried four days earlier. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's just incredible uh, the two different reactions you get from a, power, from a demonstration of power. I mean, I'll, I'll share miracles and uh, some people... They harden their heart. Well, let me see the doctors are poor, and this and this and this. And other people say, praise God. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Highest council of the land, the Sanhedrin, they said, enough is enough. And uh, that night they put into motion the final machinery that brought about his death. Why? Because they designate him as a heretic. He's a sorcerer. You know, they, just, they harden their hearts. And so uh, they couldn't deny what he was doing. And so they put it all together, and uh, this guy's the prince. He's empowered by the prince of demons. So remember earlier when Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Okay, and ultimately, uh, we see in the book of John, the, glory, the ultimate glory happened at the cross and the resurrection. He's saying this miracle led directly to the greater miracle. The cross and resurrection, it led right to his death. And that's when, um, remember he says, uh, uh, it says that he was handed over to, uh, to darkness. The day ended. His ministry ended. So for us here, what can, we, uh, can we expect this to happen today? Yeah. Miracles like this today. Well, um, our church has seen over a dozen people raised from the dead. Thank God none of them died during a Sunday morning service. We're not resurrecting like an Ananias and Sapphira type ministry. Okay? But we've had the right people at the right place at the right time. Uh, one was at a drowning in a, a pool at a hotel, uh, car accident scenes, drug overdoses, um, uh, just lots of different ones. The longest one that I know of was uh, the person was dead 16 hours. They died at 7 a.m., woke up at 11, a, uh, 11 p.m. in the morgue, went back to work two days later without any brain damage. Dreaming dead, yeah. And so we, um, yeah, so, but, this, but here's a miracle of exhuming a grave and raising of a decomposed body. Guys, this needs to expand our vision for what God wants to do. I, you get a little nervous even talking about these kind of miracles, right? I mean, digging up dead bodies, like, I'm, I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> but Jesus said, the works that I do, you're going to do also. He said, when I come back to earth, am I going to find faith? Am I going to find anyone who takes my word seriously? Someone's got to hear these words and say, you know what? I'm going to become the kind of person who can carry these out. So, let's, uh, so because this is an equipping series, I'm just about done here. Because it's an equipping series, let's look at how Jesus raised the dead. Remember, we're looking to heal like Jesus. We're looking so we can see how he did it, so we can do it like him. So um, let's just recap the, the, the three dead raisings that Jesus did. The first one was in Luke 7, the widow's uh, son in the town called Nain. I, I kind of described it. The, the Jesus and his disciples are walking past this town, and at the town gate, there's this funeral procession coming out. Jesus sees this widow. He's filled with compassion. He goes and he touches, the, uh, touches the, um, the, the casket, and it says, When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He touched the casket and said, Young man, I say to you, get up. Remember, Jesus, uh, he is always approaching the dead as if they're sleeping. What's he saying? He's saying what you would say to a child in the morning, get up. Notice, Jesus spoke directly to the person and gave an authoritative command. Guys, this is the pattern every single time. He approaches them as if they're sleeping, he speaks, he speaks to them directly with their name and uses an authoritative command and tells them to get up. Uh, the second one, Jairus' daughter, is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in different chapters there. Uh, the father is a synagogue ruler. He begs Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter. That's what he has faith for. So on the way to the house, Jesus gets delayed by the woman with the issue of blood. So this girl who was sick, now they get a report she's dead. And uh, what does Jesus say? Uh, he gets there, and they're all crying and wailing. And he says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. How, is, how would, are we to approach, if you guys, you guys if you're, I hope you're never in this situation, but if you're ever in a situation where you need to raise the dead, um, right now the death rate of human beings is right about 100%. Okay, so, all right. And so how are we to approach these things? We need to see that there is a life beyond life. And believers, they're just sleeping. Why all this commotion? The child is not dead but asleep. And they all laugh, and Jesus kicks them out of the house. He gets rid of the mourners, okay? He takes the little girl by the hand. That's what the dad had faith for. Come lay your hands on this daughter. And he says to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. He addresses her directly and tells her to get up with an authoritative command. Are you seeing a pattern here? Um, he approaches them like they're sleeping, speaks directly to them, gives them an authoritative command to wake up. Lazarus, what did he tell his disciples? Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. 
And this is amazing. Every single story. I was reading this. I had never seen this before. I was reading it on a plane. I'm like, I'm going to read all the resurrection stories in the New Testament. I was like, man, they're all the same. Jesus did it the same way. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm, uh, I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus cries in a loud voice, addresses him directly. Lazarus, come forth. And uh, speaks directly to them, gives them the authoritative command for him to get up. Acts chapter 9. This is the story of Peter, one of the followers of Jesus. So how does Peter going to raise the dead? There was uh, someone named Dorcas or Tabitha. Um, I think if I had the choice between the two names, I'd rather be Tabitha than Dorcas. I don't know why. Maybe you. Uh, but let's just say Dorcas, because you never get to say that, really. Uh, Dorcas, she was a follower of Jesus. She became sick and died. And some people asked Peter. They heard Peter's in town. And they say, hey, come pray for Tabitha. And uh, when Peter gets there, people are crying. And uh, what does he do? He sends them all out of the room. Sound familiar? Man, you, you, he doesn't want that atmosphere of unbelief and all that. Uh, and here it is in Acts chapter 9, verse 40. But Peter put them all aside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. What's he do? Addresses her directly. Speaks with authoritative command. Commands her to get up. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. What's he doing? He kicks her out. Uh, kicks out just like Jesus did. Um, when Elijah and Elisha raised the dead in the Old Testament, they also did it in private. I think it was Elisha that says he went into the room and shut the door. And, um, man, sometimes it's, I, I've, I've, I've prayed for situations before and when people are watching, and it's just, it's just harder when uh, you've got people watching over you. Just you're a little bit more self-conscious. Peter kneels and prays. It's the same way that Elijah and Elisha did. So he's taken a little bit from Jesus. From, uh, he's taken most of it from Jesus, but also the Old Testament prophets. They knelt down and prayed. What they were doing, he's probably tuning into the Lord. Jesus stayed tuned into the Lord. So, you know, what? sometimes we may need to do that. If we're in these situations, we may need to extra tune into the Lord, and then when we've got that moment, we've got that spark, we can turn and issue the command. And he approached her like she was sleeping. Get up. Calls her by name. Same, same pattern as Jesus. Interesting, Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul, he's teaching upstairs, and it says he was talking till midnight, and a young man was sitting on the ledge of the third story window and fell asleep as Paul talked on and on. That's kind of mean. Like, do they really need to put that? Paul talked on and on and on and on. And so some of you are like, yeah, I fulfilled that scripture on Sundays when the preacher talked on and on. I'm just glad I wasn't in the third story. I've seen some of your eyes shut. Don't even act like you haven't. No, I seriously have. And it says the young man died as a result of the fall. Can you, I mean, that's, that's kind of a downer for a preacher. You're preaching, and it's, you're going on so long, the guy falls out of the third story window and dies. I mean, I don't care how good you are. That's going to that's gonna kill the mood there. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. So Paul, what's he do? Interesting. Peter does it just like Jesus, because Peter um, saw how Jesus did it. Paul, he wasn't a physical follower of Jesus. He never got to see how Jesus did it. So Paul does it just like the Old Testament prophets. He had the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Peter did it just like Jesus because that's how he saw Jesus do it. He was with Jesus for those three dead raisings. Paul was not there when Jesus raised the dead, but he was an Old Testament scholar and did it just like Elijah and Elisha did from the Old Testament. All right, back to the story of uh, Lazarus, okay? Um, this story, it has to give us the finale in our understanding of the unlimited power of God in any situation. Guys, if he can uh, heal a decomposing body <laughs> resurrected from the dead... Uh, then cancer and diabetes and paralysis and every disease seem very small in comparison. 
we've got to see how this resurrection story points us towards the ultimate resurrection. Here we are on uh, Resurrection Sunday. And as Christians, listen, we believe passionately in divine healing. We believe passionately in prosperity, and God wants you well and whole. But here's the deal, guys. All of us are going to die at some point. In case you didn't know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, we're all going to die at some point. And I've been in the charismatic movement my whole life, 51 years. So I know I only look like I'm 50, but I'm actually 51. And so, um, and so the charismatic movement, we don't, we don't face death very well. Okay, we so believe for healing that when it doesn't happen, it's like we, we don't even know what to do. We don't even know how to grieve. And so I've heard people say, well, you know, I want dancing to be at my funeral. Listen, it, it's okay to sorrow. We just don't sorrow as those who have no hope, okay? We have to realize our healing in this life is just a foretaste of the ultimate resurrection. Okay, it's just a little taste. It's just the hors d'oeuvres of what's to come. So when a Christian dies, we can do it with triumph. The person who dies, they're going to walk into the next life beaming and laughing with joy. But those that are left behind, they sorrow. And you're supposed to sorrow. And uh, you're supposed to sorrow when you lose somebody that you love. You don't have to feel like you've got to put on this joy dance. It's okay. Uh, but when we do sorrow, we have hope. Guys, there's triumph in our tears when a believer dies. We say they died, but they didn't die. They really lifed. They're entering into a life that is truly life. They're more alive than they've ever been before. And what we have in our earthly life, you can think of it like a womb. you got a baby in a womb, and it's confined, and it's nice and comfortable in there, and it knows its boundaries, right? Everything's great and comfy, and it's known, and all of a sudden, they're forced through this canal, and naked and screaming, and it's, it's, it's unknown, but now they go into a world of unlimited potential versus what was just in the womb, okay? That's what this life is. It's like we're in this safe womb, and, and we love this life, and we're supposed, to love, uh, we're supposed to love parts of this life. I mean, God's given us, you know, uh, love and joy and peace and table tennis and just all sorts of wonderful things and sunsets and taste buds and spices and ping pong. And so, um, and so there, there's a security in this life. There, I, God is not suicidal. It's not this thing where I, I, I want to die and go be with you. You're supposed to enjoy this life. But this life is just a womb. And it's going, we're actually going into another dimension full of endless possibilities because of the resurrection of Jesus that we will have a resurrection. We will have a life that is truly life. There is no fear in death. For every believer to die is to fall asleep here and to wake up in the arms of Jesus. And to enter into the life that is truly life. So the raising of Lazarus is a different kind of miracle than we've looked at, but I trust it's brought you an understanding not of only God's almighty power, but of our resurrection hope in Jesus. Let's stand for closing prayer. not quite a sign and a wonder, but we just did 40 verses in I don't know how many minutes, and so that is, that's a lot for us. Whew. Lord, anyone in here who uh, has a fear of death, I pray that uh, they would have a revelation of Jesus, that you, uh, it's Hebrews says that you broke the power of death. You broke those who were held on all their life, to, uh, the fear of death, and so Lord, I pray for revelation that uh, we have no fear in death that we, uh, we will enter into a life that is truly life. And Lord, we are so thankful for resurrection life, God, that that is, that is our hope, that no matter what happens on this planet, the injustices, the unfairness, everything will be made right. You will wipe away every tear, that there will be a day where everything will be set right in the kingdom of God. We'll get to live in it just the way you want it, endlessly in your presence. And so, Lord, I pray for just a great hope to rise up here.
Father, I also thank you that power is available today. We don't have to wait to the millennium. We don't have to wait till some future time. And so, Lord, whatever somebody's facing right now, I just pray for a, a quickening that resurrection power is here today. It's not just an event, it's a person. And that life is available today. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you're here today and you would like some extra prayer, you want, uh, you want that resurrection power to flow into your life, we would love a chance to pray with you. Our ministry teams are coming forward. They'll be the ones with tags on. We have a resurrection.